Welcome to Eerie Essex. I'm Bethan Briggs-Miller. And I'm Ailsa Clark. Thank you for joining us on our journey into the stranger side of the county. We will be exploring the folklore, urban legends and supernatural encounters that form part of its rich history. Welcome to Eerie Essex, episode four. This month we're going to be talking about haunted roads and Bethan has our first story today. I've got a personal story to share at the end, which hopefully some of you are going to find really creepy. So Bethan, would you like to go first? I will go first, yes. And my first story is about Betty Potter's dip. Now, whenever I talk, whenever I say that, I just imagine this really lovely, organic, like sort of dip for your carrot or celery or crisps. Mm, Betty Potter's dip. Make I was, all I was, natural products. My brain went straight to innuendo. Of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> so Betty Potter's dip is an unmarked roadside location at Boxstead, which is just north of Colchester. And it's named after an Elizabeth Potter. Now, there are two versions of this story. In one story, she's a witch. And in one story, a very sad case where she took her own life. Trigger warning, both stories uh, touch on a suicide. So if anybody doesn't want to hear this, then please feel free to skip my story because it is quite sad, but very interesting. And if you want to listen, I'm sure you'll find it very interesting. So. The earliest mention in print of Betty Potter's dip or roadside grave appear in the East Anglian miscellany of 22nd of March 1902. As I said, there's two versions of the story. So I shall first tell you the story where she was condemned as a witch. So in the 1640s, Betty Potter lived in a cottage beside the straight road, which you still see on the maps today of Boxted. She was known locally as a healer and once cured a wealthy merchant's daughter and was supposed to have bewitched horses pulling a wagon load of wheat south of Rivers Hall when they refused to share the wheat on the cart with her, which I don't know about you. Every time I, I start looking at stories of witches, there's always a wagon being stopped. As you remember from Canudan, those witches or warlocks were very well known for being able to stop machinery and vehicles with their eyes. So see that again here. And there's the point that it was carrying wheat. And what do we know about the rye and the wheat grown in the area? The ergot poisoning. Yes. So it's all connected. <laughs> well, one night, the squire's son and a gang of locals dragged poor Betty from her cottage and hanged her from a nearby tree. Now, apparently, Matthew Hopkins was en route to come and collect her for trial and was furious that they had exacted this revenge without his knowledge and before he could even get there and he went to go and retrieve the body and said he saw a get down off the tree and vanish into thin air just leaving her clothes behind and in this story she is said to reappear and haunt the road on the 21st of october now there is another variation of this tale and probably more truthful or or more likely to be the truth and this actually takes place in 1768 so in this story Betty Potter 
still lived in the village in the same in the same sort of location um, in the cottage. Now, her father, Nathaniel Potter, had been violently ill. This was on the 9th of October, 1768. He vomited frequently and died on that. And the same day he became ill, he died that evening. And the funeral took place without incident, but all the neighbours were very suspicious. And they were suspicious because on the 8th of October, Betty had bought white mercury in a local shop saying it was to poison the rats. So they then suspected that she had poisoned her father. Now, it wasn't long before this that uh, Nathaniel Potter had made a will leaving everything to Betty and her mother. So you could see where they got their thought process from. So they informed the magistrate and Elizabeth said, well, Betty said her mother told her to buy the mercury and put it in her father's milk. Unable to tell who was telling the truth, both were detained at Colchester Castle and later Chelmsford Jail to await trial. The case was heard at Chelmsford Assizes the following March, so they were in jail for quite a long time if this was around October. So Anne Potter, her mother, was charged with poisoning her late husband, but was acquitted as no evidence could be brought against her. Her daughter greatly prevaricated, but it doesn't really say how or what against. I can't actually remember. What does prevaricated mean? Made a scene. Oh, okay. So maybe maybe she really did feel that her mother had done this and was annoyed that she had been acquitted. But anyway, in 1769, Betty married. And in two years and nine months after her marriage, at the age of 28, she hung herself. And people think it might be because the stigma of the whole trial and what happened with her father had haunted her. And there's also some thought that maybe she was accused of being a witch. So it sort of feeds into the other story. And I think at this point is where both stories sort of mingle. And you can tell where uh, the story sort of starts to become quite similar. So when investigating a suicide, coroners and their juries often prefer to declare a verdict of non-compass mentis. This would mean that they were permitted a churchyard burial. And so it's sort of like the community would look out for each other and declare this person wasn't in their right mind. Of course, who is in their right mind with these things? But in this case, it was actually brought as a philo de se verdict, which means that she was in her right mind and acted unlawfully. So this would mean that she couldn't be buried in a churchyard and bound the coroner to order a roadside burial. This particular jury probably didn't know that she had been suspected of murdering her father, and that could have actually been why they decided not to um, say that she had not been in her right mind. And this is what led to the roadside grave. Now, a part of this story is that she was buried with a stake through her heart, which actually see a lot in roadside burials, particularly through Essex. I don't know about through the rest of the country, but I have come across quite a few of these stories. I mean, in Canudan, there was a, a witch. You can't see me doing air quotes here. Sorry, I realise it's a podcast. You can't see me. A witch. You definitely made the sound of air quotes. A witch. A witch. <laughs> um, had been buried in a roadside grave with a stake through her heart. And apparently this was common practice if someone had killed another person before taking their own life. And in 1813, the stake was driven through the heart of a woman in Norfolk who had drowned her baby before poisoning herself. And in Lincolnshire in 1790, Two stakes were driven through a woman who had killed four people before taking her own life. So it's like one stake per two people that you kill them. Yeah, there seems to be a, a rhyme and a reason to it. <laughs> a, a weird sort of uh, uh, maths going on there. Yes. <laughs> so pretty grim maths. 
So as Bessie's death isn't actually recorded in the parish registers, this would suggest that she was actually buried in a roadside grave, which is very sad. Now, the hauntings around this road often involve car crashes. So this is what this is the main source of um, incidents that occur around Betty Potter's dip. So there, around the time of 1958, sort of 1970, Douglas Carter, a writer, had been the landlord of the pub there. And he said, while in his knowledge, there have been three fatal deaths, usually only involving one vehicle. The vehicle would normally leave the road and be, end up in a surrounding field. And one time there was a survivor. And he said he swerved to avoid the woman in the middle of the road. And others have seen a strangely dressed woman. And when approached, she disappears. And in 1912, a local postmaster had died when being thrown from the car- his cart. And if you look online, even like now, there's still some people who say they see the figure of a woman in the field beside the road. And I'll put a map actually on the Instagram after this recording goes out so you can see whereabouts Betty Potter's dip is. Because it's not obvious. Find out the A road. Yeah, so your mum and dad can know the A road precisely. (laughs) (laughs) There's one nice little thing I read that um, she also takes the shape of a barn owl. And I love any story that involves owls, especially you see them a lot in UFO stories, but when there's ghosts involved, I particularly like that. Yeah, I love the owls. Do love the owls. Let's have a look. So as I was looking at the history of Boxstead, I won't go into these now because these actually might warrant talking about in another podcast but they have a plague doctor ghost with the mask on yeah i know it's like my worst nightmare oh a bit like the haunting of bly manor the haunt yeah exactly like that Um, and he wanders the path not able to pass over for the guilt of not being able to cure everyone of the black death but it's like i might go into that another time there's a vicar who threw himself off the church tower and he haunts around there and a chimney sweep who got stuck in a chimney and suffocated to death I think I'd heard the Vicar one. Had you? I used to live around those parts. You and, did, um, didn't you? Yeah, I think I've heard that Vicar one. Not for a really long time. I can't remember the details. But yeah. hmm. Well, there you go. So, I mean, there's two variations on the story. I imagine the one where her father was poisoned by whatever, however it happened. is probably the more truthful story. And the whole witch story may have sort of evolved around it because we're in Essex in you know, Matthew Hopkins country. Can't so throw a stone without hitting a witch. You can't. And please don't so, throw stones at witches. No doubt. So I don't know quite which is the truth. I mean, Betty Potter, I imagine Elizabeth Potter might have actually been quite a common name. It could be two different Elizabeths, both meeting the grisly end. So was the first story set earlier than the... Yeah. the so how much earlier was the first story? Was the it within this story was in lifetime. the... 1640 and the later one was 1768 so like the same person could still have been if i'm thinking about this right i mean they'd be very old maybe like grandmother and then granddaughter could be i mean the the 1768 elizabeth uh died at 28 so it wouldn't be the same elizabeth but as you say to recycle names though didn't they they did yeah so could be related i mean when we go to the Essex Record Office. I'd like to look up Betty Potter's dip. Betty Potter's <laughs> I'm going to look up Betty Potter's dip. <laughs> oh, that's why. Go, go on. on. No, I was <laughs> going to say, every time you said Betty Potter's dip, I had to mute myself because I started giggling like an idiot. Yes, I know. I saw you in the corner of my <laughs> eye. But uh, that's my main story. 
which I think is a pretty good story considering it's quite close. I always like it when you find a story that's close to where we live. It makes it feel more real. But um, um, I have got a few other mini stories, which I'll share with you after your story and before your personal story, like little sort of snippets. But if you want to tell me yours, I'm very, very excited for yours. I was so excited about this one. Um, Do you mind if I share screen so I can actually see you freaking out in the corner of my eye whilst I'm reading it? Yeah. Just, you know, don't read my script. No, I should look yonder. Okay. Let's get down. You told me not to read it and now it's all I want to do. (laughs) So my story takes place on the road to Mersey. Um, For those who aren't from around these parts, Mersey is an island um, just a little bit beyond Colchester. Um, It's a lovely place. We go there for the beach quite often in the summer, but it has quite a sinister ghost story or several quite sinister ghost stories, as it turns out. So Mersey itself is quite often cut off from the mainland by the tides, um, making working, going to school, sort of travelling back and forth quite awkward. On top of that, there is only one road that connects Mersey to the mainland, and that is the Strood Causeway, and it's quite haunted. Travellers along the causeway are traversing the same path that the Romans and Anglo-Saxons before them trod, The construction of the causeway itself has been dated to AD 1684 to 702. For many years, people believed it had been built by the Romans for excavation of a trench for a water line, for a water pipeline in 1978, proved that its construction had begun later in the Anglo-Saxon period, which makes sense as the water level would have been lower during the Roman period. So crossing the island wouldn't have actually needed the causeway. Um, as the high tide wouldn't have actually come up too far. More information on that excavation can be found on the Colchester Archaeological Trust website. Though it does seem at least one Roman soldier is still tramping back and forth across the Strood, and usually he's seen around dusk. Famously, the landlady of the Peldon Rose, uh, she was there between 1878 until her death in 1935, seems to have counted the Roman soldier on several occasions. Mrs. Pullen said she heard the steady tramp of a soldier marching alongside her all the way to the Strood. In her own words, she recalled, I could see no one, yet the feet were close beside me, as near as I could have touched him. She says, I bopped, which means crouched, down to look along the road in the moonlight, and yet no one was there. She kept on walking until she met a man she knew, who was all a-tremble. He said he could hear a man but wasn't able to see anyone. Mrs Pullen, with great presence of mind, said, Keep all along of me, tis only one of those old Romans come out of the barrows. Her own uh, speech is quite hard to read because she speaks in quite a a heavy accent (laughs) by the looks of it. Um, However, she also claims to have seen the Roman centurion as plain as she saw the person interviewing her and has other witnesses to back her up. According to Visit Mersey Island, there are even reports of the terrifying sound of soldiers fighting with swords and men marching with heavy carts along the Strood. Even scarier is that these sounds are also reportedly heard when the tide is completely covering the causeway. Just south of the Strood, on the island itself, there is a burial mound thought to be Roman, about 100 to 120 CE, which I probably should have looked up. It was excavated in 1912 and found to contain a lead box with a wooden lid. And the box uh, contained an urn of green glass containing cremated remains. Clearly, the burial was of high status. 
and some have suggested that the ghostly centurion is the guard of the final resting place of this person. Local people drew the obvious conclusion that the cremation was uh, the ghostly centurion, and there was a feeling that he might never appear again after that barrow had been excavated. However, one winter night, two naval uh, officers were driving across the Strood to Mersey and caught in their headlights what seemed to be a human figure wearing a helmet and having vertical and horizontal white lines across it. They screeched to a halt, fearing that they'd hit someone, but they got out of the car and no one was there. When they spoke of this later that night, they were told about the centurion, whom they've never heard of before, and concluded the white lines they'd seen were the metal plates on his kilt. The phantom has been seen since then. In the 1940s, I found this blog by a man called Rupert Taylor on a site called Exemplor. Um, He wrote about the Strood Causeway for that website and his family lived in on Mersey and his father told a story of a couple of friends of his. They had been out at night in a rowboat on a stretch of water near the Strood. Suddenly both saw the centurion. Terrified, they both rowed away at such speed they could have pulled a water skier behind them. Um, I also found a video which was interviewing local people about the Roman ghost and found several more antidote sightings. So a local man, Alfred, was on his way back from Colchester after the pub, of course. Of course. And it was a misty night and he saw in the headlights, walking towards the mound, the centurion in full armour with a sword, but he didn't have any legs. So Alfred followed him down the road to the mound and then the centurion had turned around to look at him and disappeared. And then there's another story from Valerie, another Mersey local. So it was about 12 a.m. and her and her husband were coming back from Colchester and it was a full moon and it was also high tide on the River Street. So they were crossing in some quite deep water by the sounds of it, which is actually quite dangerous and you probably yes. shouldn't attempt that. Please don't do that. So they were driving along and she knew the story of the Roman centurion and then thought she'd seen him walking along the side of the road. Uh, but her husband didn't believe her until they almost pulled up beside him. She said he was a large man with a rounded face and the water at that point was at level with the pavement. They drove past him and all the way down to the other end of the causeway and then turned back around to see if they could find him again, but he was gone. And the last one, so all of these interviews, they were probably done in about the late 80s, if maybe early 90s. So this last one took place on the autumn equinox in 1987, about three to four in the morning, which we know is the witching hour. It is. So Jill Smeaton, who owns a farm quite close to the causeway and the barrow, said she sat bolt upright in her bed to the sound of two unshod horses dragging a cart through the reeds. And she had cut the grass that day, so she knew that sound was impossible. It shouldn't sound like horses going through the reeds. She said the walls of her bungalow shook. And her and her friend thought that their own horses had got out and they rushed outside to deal with them. So um, when they got outside, there was nothing there. So uh, there is another story I have at the end about the Strood, which this one makes me think whether that one is actually related to that story rather than the Roman centurion. Okay. So September 1989 was the last official recorded sighting of the centurion. However, that one turned out to be an elaborate hoax and I couldn't find any more information on it, but it sounds like it was a right good time. Not everyone agrees, though, that it is a Roman centurion. There is a story regarding the Strood Causeway 
that has many of the same elements as the Roman centurion haunting. Uh, this next story is from the Reverend Sabine Barring Gould, which I'm hoping great is name. <laughs> yeah, it is a great name, but you'll find out more about him in a bit. The haunting of the Strood Causeway, he says, goes back to the time of the Danes and the victims of a tragic love triangle buried in Barrow Hill. Ooh, the story was told by Reverend Barring Gould, rector of East Mersey in 1880, that in olden times when the Danes wintered on Mersey and in the summer cruised along the coast, burning and plundering, their two leaders were twin brothers. One spring day, they sailed up the creek to St. Othis, Othis, I can never say it, Othis. It's very hard to say, Othis. <laughs> it's, it's an O and then too many th- sounds. <laughs> to St. Othis Nunnery, where they killed St. Othis. I'm so sorry, I'm butchering her name, but carried off her beautiful sister. When they got back to Mersey, each wanted her for his own, and their love turned into jealousy. Drawing their swords, they hacked one another, and by nightfall, both were dead. The Danes drew their ship up to the top of the hill just above the Strood and put the woman in the hold with the dead brother on either side. What, so she, she died was, too? No, she was still alive. Oh my God. And they raised the barrow above them and buried them all, the living and the dead, together. When the new moon appears, the flesh grows on their bones, the blood staunches and the wounds close and breath comes back behind their ribs. And if you listen at full moon, you can hear the brothers fighting. But when the moon wanes, the armour falls to bits, their flesh drops away, the blood oozes out of their veins, and all is still at last. My goodness. That's, yeah, that's some horrific, description. Yeah. I'm going to go into a bit about Reverend Sabine Berengould. He liked his gore. He did. Um, he was actually a collector of folk songs. Quite a well-educated man by the sounds of it. Though he doesn't seem to have enjoyed his residency much. At, over at Mersey, he called the locals dull, reserved, shy, and suspicious. And he said, "I never managed to understand them, uh, nor they understand me." Which I'm, I'm just going to say this: he sounds a bit stuck up. He does sound stuck up. <laughs> I, know, I know quite a few Mersey people, and they're great. They're lovely. So Rev Baron Gould uh, was a man of many accomplishments. He spoke six languages, wrote more than 100 books, including 30 novels and a mammoth 16 volume, Lives of the Saints. He collected folk music, as I said earlier, and he wrote Onward Christian Soldiers, among other hymns. Apparently he also fathered 15 children. Yes, with one woman. Though he doesn't seem to have been that attentive a parent since he once called a little girl over at a children's party to ask who ch- whose child she was, only for the girl to burst out crying because, you guessed it, it was his child. No. Yes. So that's my kind of counterbalance to the actual story that he told, is that he was obviously a very well-educated man in a place where he felt maybe his talents were being wasted I wonder and why poss- he was sent there then, if he was that talented. Mm, well, he had 15 kids and he couldn't remember which ones were his. I wonder how great a, a party guest he was. Yes. And maybe, you know, if he if he thought the residents thought him, or they were shy and suspicious, maybe we know why. Yeah. He was stuck inside either writing books or um, up to I no mean, good. there's nothing wrong with writing books and, you know, uh, seeking knowledge, but he does sound a bit pompous. Mm-hmm. I'm probably like disparaging a really what is probably a nice man but it was just how he was written in this it doesn't paint him well 
No, it doesn't. None of nothing I could find about. I mean, like everything said he's this brilliant man, but then all the personal antidotes kind of painted him as this kind of aloof, snobbish person. <laughs> Interestingly, this this story does remind me of a nonsense poem, sometimes called the Ballad of Impossibilities, which starts with the lines: "One fine morning in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight." Yes. Do you remember that one? I do. Yeah. Is that connected to this or is it just coincidence? Well, this is Sounds like I, I looked up to see where this poem came from. Um, and it is a folkloric verse that was being passed around as early as the 18th century. Baron Gould collecting folklore songs himself and a well-educated man. He might have heard this poem and drawn inspiration from it, uh, was my conclusion. So he wrote a story that... yeah. Um, though it is a brilliant story, and I, I don't know, I don't know whether I wish it was true because the poor woman in this, she just gets dumped in a barrow next to these two dead men who killed her sister and kidnapped her. Yeah, and then has nothing to do for the rest of the time. She just sits there whilst these two men keep on fighting over her. Does she come back with the two men? I'm guessing it means all three come back. My what does she do all night? Yeah, bored out of her skull probably. So there is one more figure who haunts the causeway, a formidable man armed to the teeth, slashing at everything as he goes on his way. Some believe he was in fact a smuggler or a wrecker, and he goes out of his way to find trouble. Some frightened witnesses have raced along the causeway, fearing he was just behind them the entire time, only to reach the other side and no one is there. Oh, that is creepy. So smugglers come into this in quite a big way. It's thought that smugglers were the ones who created and spread the ghost stories around the area to keep people away whilst they continued the, uh, their illegal activities. Makes sense. The many inlets and creeks around the area were used by smugglers bringing in tobacco, liquor, silts, sugar and nutmeg and anything else that the government revenue, uh, revenue agents might be interested in. The theory is that, that the smugglers invented the, go- the hauntings as a way of scaring people away so they could trade at night. One story in particular takes uh, talks about a death creek Ooh, where a group of local smug- smugglers congregated in the old Victory pub. They decided to get rid of the government revenue men that were currently patrolling the coastal areas and they let it be known that they would be targeting a large cargo ship on OC I- Island one dark night. However, their focus that night wasn't on the cargo, but those that were protecting it. Sure enough, the following morning, the revenue craft was discovered with 24 dead bodies on board, all of the members of the government customs team, and no one was ever held responsible for their deaths. My goodness. So, yes, smugglers and ghosts. Um, The last story I have here is not a ghost story, but it is very tragic. Um, And I think it may have been the inspiration for a very famous ghost story. Okay. Um, a shocking incident occurred at West Mersey on the afternoon of Good Friday, 19th of April, 1889. Two sisters named Eva Clary and Anne Clary, with a girl named Powell, though they don't give her a first name, were driving across the long causeway called the Strood, which connects Mersey Island and the mainland, when the pony was frightened by the rough sea and it fell over the edge of the causeway, dragging the trap and its occupants into the water, which is some 10 to 12 feet deep. The two sisters seemed to have fallen under the trap and were drowned almost instantly, but the girl Powell managed to struggle to the bank. The deceased girls were daughters of a man called George Clary, a labourer, and a far, uh, he was in the employment of somebody called uh, Willoughby Bean, which is a great name, mm-hmm. um, who was a farmer and oyster merchant because uh, Mersey's famous for its oysters. 
They'd hired the pony off a man called Mr. Fisher, a seed grower, and intended to drive to Wivenhoe to meet their cousin, who actually arrived on the spot shortly after the accident. Mr. Clary was almost frantic with grief at, at the scene on the Strood, which was thronged by hundreds of people witnessing this extremely distressing event. So I think this terrible accident may have been the inspiration for the woman in black. And ironically, wasn't the woman in black too filmed on Mersey Island and the Strood? I think it was. Yeah, well, I th- I mean, was it Mersey or OC? I can't remember, but it is set around that area. Yeah. So Ooh, um, I got the chills. Another causeway worth noting. This is just my little add-on. Is the Broomway? Uh, I don't know of any ghostly sightings on it. It's uh, the Broomway leads to Foulness Island, and over a hundred people have lost their lives crossing the causeway. Sixty-six of those people are buried in the churchyard at Foulness. And Foulness is. You talked about that in the last episode. So Yes. So that's when I said there was lots around that area. I really, I really meant it was very close around that area. So it's called the Broomway because it used to be marked by about 400 brooms that were placed between 30 and 60 yards either side of the track to indicate where you should be walking. And the island is uncrossable, save by boat. So you have to go across that, that causeway if you want to get there. But currently, the Ministry of Defence has control of the island for research purposes and is continuing to conduct artillery firing tests. So I just thought I'd add that in because as I was looking up causeways, that one seemed like it should go one. somewhere with a ghost story, but didn't. So Very that was um, that was my sort of three-part ghost story of the Strood Causeway. It sounds incredibly terrifying to cross there in a moonlit night. It was an absolute gold mine. I, so I found out about the Roman centurion because my neighbour told me, oh, you should look up the Roman centurion on the Strood Causeway. And she didn't know any of this. She'd lived there her, most of her life and she didn't know any more of this than apparently a Roman centurion had been seen. So it was. I just kept on finding more and more and more as I went. There's probably more to find. Yeah, almost definitely. That was a really good story. Yeah, I've been excited about that one. Well, um, I'm going to tell your um, your mini stories now. Yeah. Okay. So these are short little stories, but there seem really good little nuggets of spookiness that I wanted to include. So there's Moore's Bridge in Danbury. Uh, in the middle of Danbury, the A414 bends and northwards from this bend leads the narrow main road. And a little way, it narrows further into a metal footpath called Moore's Bridge Lane. According to a former Essex man, here is located a brief but intriguing haunting where the ghostly figures of a sow and 12 piglets are often seen crossing the bridge. <laughs> and that's that. I just love the fact that there was a ghost of a pig and her piglets Aww. going across this bridge. I'd love, of all the ghosts I'd like to see, I'd like to see that one. Yeah. That sounds very cute. I did have sort of flashes of Roanoke there for a second. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it more babe. <laughs> so you always go innocent i always go dark yes i have no there's another witch burial at a crossroads at finching field northeast of the village of fin- finching field is a little hamlet and it's just house street and there's a typical grassy english grassy triangle in the middle of it so like where the crossroads meet there's this little patch of grass and at this junction three witches are said to be buried including and this is one of the best names i've come across so far goofy mumford Oh my god! Isn't that the best? Child. 
Well, she was the schoolmistress of Howe Street in the late 18th century, and she was allegedly caught teaching witchcraft to some of the local girls. And they dragged her from her cottage, which still stands, and stoned her to death. And she's she was one probably of the just teaching them to wash their hands. Probably, probably. But I just thought it was a great name, Goofy Mumford. Goofy Mumford. Oh gosh. And then she s- became a school teacher. I know. I doubt the children would have known her first name. <laughs> just Mrs. Mumford. Okay, so there's also around the same area, five highwaymen are said to be buried by the roadside. They were believed to have been tried and hanged for their crimes on Justice Justice's Hill, a little further south of Westerfield Road. So Finch and Field's got quite a lot of horrific stories. And then in Little Waltham, when a road in this parish was widened in the 1950s at a spot which used to be a crossroads, a skeleton was unearthed and had, can you guess, Elsa? A stake through it. Many stakes through oh. it. Yeah. Adjacent was Witch's Field. It's actually named that. And the where it was and where the name existed before is unknown. And this is apparently unconnected to the dubious tale of the witch Scrap Faggot's Green. So I tried to look up Scrap Faggot Green. I'm going to come back to that, I think, another time. But another, it, I just found it interesting there was another roadside burial with stakes through it. In Great Clapton, at the junction of London Road and St John's Road, there's a haunting. So before traffic in the area increased considerably, there were several reports of a ghostly horse without a rider, which would cross the roundabout before vanishing into a now-demolished barn. And then, oh, this is the one I give you a sneak peek at before we started recording. Gravity Hill. So this is known as Hangman's Hill in Epping Forest. It's more of a legend than anything. So the local legend says that cars are pushed uphill by the ghost of a person who hung themselves or by a phantom hangman who went on a killing spree. Either way, the anti-gravity effect is caused by some environmental optical illusion. But I really want to go and drive up it, Elsa. Can we go and drive up it? <laughs> Where is it? Epping Forest, did you say? Uh-huh. Yeah. Learn to drive. <laughs> I will learn to drive. You know, you know my feeling about driving somewhere where I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> this is true. Maybe we can get there another way because Epping Forest has its own big foot, apparently. Get a car to go up that we can. Oh, I will build up my courage to do things like this. I promise. Or we'll book a taxi, but not tell the taxi driver what to expect, <laughs> and just say, "Can you stop here? Can you let off the handbrake?" And then or just watch their face. Taxi driver. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I've only got a couple more. So at a petrol station in Thorrington, there's a ghost that's only visible on video surveillance cameras. And witnesses in the garage have watched a car driver arrive at the garage and then disappear slowly into thin air. And this happens over a period of 20 minutes. They go outside and there's no, no one there, but on the monitors they can see a car. Oh, how and this really? is on different cameras and on different tapes. Oh, imagine that when you're working alone at night in a... Yeah. In a- Garrett, like, because that is a lonely job, isn't it? Not nice, is it? No. So then I actually came across something at West Mersey. Yay! Busy again. So this is between. Oh, I think p- I might know what you're going to say because I think I I looked him up and I thought, oh, I, I'll leave him for another time. But if you've got him, go for it. Okay. So this person was driving a car along um, the road, which is between the Fox and the Turning for Waldegraves, and they saw a, a white cloaked figure crossed the road ahead of them halfway across the road the figure looked backwards but continued to move forwards till vanishing into a roadside hedge around 14 years later the original witness was once again passenger in the car and this time was driven by his wife she braked hard on the same stretch of road as she has spotted something white crossing ahead of her is that the one you heard i think it was it was something related to a monk as well 
I definitely have that. heard that one, but there's another one with a monk that I, I briefly looked up and then thought, oh, the strood's just becoming bigger and bigger. I'll leave them for another time. I started finding monk things all the time, but then I'm going to, I think we need, we need to do a monk episode. Yes. Hey, hey, it's the monkeys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> this is how we come up with names, by the way. We try and find the worst pun imaginable. <laughs> yeah, we're currently arguing over this episode one. So whatever this episode's called, you know more than us at this point. <laughs> but those are my mini tales. So can you tell us your tale? Because I really want to hear it. Okay, I've been teasing you with this one long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, hang on. Let me go back to the share screen so I can actually, because I want to see your face get really I want you to out. spill the beans. Hang on, where's the share Especially screen? you being a skeptic. Yeah. Do you know, this isn't the only story I have like this. And I am still a skeptic because I feel like I can explain most most of these things. So when I was a bit younger, I think this took place between when I was maybe sort of 15 to 17. I used to suffer from some really, really bad insomnia, which was anxiety induced. But I'd stay up for maybe maybe two, three days before I'd finally sleep. This is when I lived with my parents on the Essex-Suffolk border, and I didn't like getting up and disturbing them, so I'd stay in my room, usually draw or paint, um, and when it was too hot, I'd sit on the windowsill and put my head against the glass, and I used to watch the road outside for cats and other wildlife, because it is a very, very dead, quiet road, and... I am, I have a horrible phobia of moths. So when it's very hot, I can't open the window because I am scared to death. <laughs> I don't want them coming, coming in. And we live near a lot of fields and we get those giant, hairy, dusty ones. So what I do is I sit on the windowsill with the window open, just a tiny little crack. Yeah. In university, I fell asleep once with my mouth open and a moth flew in and I woke up with one of those dusty moths in my mouth and I I spat it out and the dust went everywhere. And I've been terrified since. Oh, God. No, I can't even think about that. That's so awful. I'll message you about it. That makes me feel worse than the story I'm about to tell. So this was probably on my third night of no sleep and it was hot. So I was on the windowsill. And I wasn't really looking at anything, but I became aware of movement out the corner of my eye. I was looking across the road outside where there are very few cars parked um, because we all have driveways. Um, But one car parked on the road was a vintage car owned by one of my neighbour's older children. Um, It was a really lovely car. I really liked this car. It was lovely, shiny black. I'm not going to describe what exactly it was, though, um, because I think it might be quite recognisable to the people who listen to this podcast. (laughs) So I became aware of somebody standing beside the car and this was anywhere between two and four o'clock in the morning. Oh, right. And as I kind of like sort of started to turn my vision that way, the person became more and more solid and I saw they were wearing a high-vis jacket and a hat and I realised they were holding a very large sign. So as I grew accustomed to what I was seeing, because there's no streetlights, the only way you can see outside is people have their porch lights on all night. So I eventually realised this was a lollipop sign, the sort that people carry to help children cross roads. And I was staring and staring and I was so tired. It took my brain a while to catch up with the fact that this was not normal in a quiet cul-de-sac miles away from a school at sort of two to four o'clock in the morning. They were facing away from me, looking straight at that lovely vintage car. And as I continued staring, something even stranger happened. The person's arms started lengthening The lollipop sign remained upright, but the arms sort of like pulled 
on the floor, all around them, curling around and dropping off the lip of the pavement. Oh, my like I, God. I remember that in such detail that it kind of dropped off the lip and started curling around still. Finally, I realised I was likely hallucinating and I tried looking away and looking back, but it was still there. Finally, I freaked myself out sufficiently enough that I jumped off the windowsill back into my bed, pulled the covers over and stayed under them until it was light outside, even though it was sweltering. And that was the end of that story. That's horrific. Yes. Well, Can I you remember that- it very clearly? Yeah, really clearly. There's, you there's draw a part, sorry. Do you reckon you could draw it? Oh yeah, definitely. Like it's one of those images that really gets burned into your brain. I am almost certain that this was induced by almost three days of no sleep. Like I can see how it's sort of, you know, it could be related to the car, this lovely vintage car. Maybe it had some kind of accident with a lollipop sign carrier in the past or, but I, like my brain wants me to know that you, I was hallucinating. I think that's the way I cope with it. <laughs> yeah, I think if that makes you feel safe after seeing something <laughs> horrific like that, then you go with that. So, um, yeah, did I did I creep you out sufficiently? Yes, I'm now going to be <laughs> looking out the window at cars, but I can't sleep. No, as long as they're not vintage cars, you're probably fine. <laughs> there are hundreds around here. Oh yes, well you do live in the in the posh end, don't you? Well, the sort of the, the, the start of the posh end. Adjacent to the posh end. I'm adjacent to the posh end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a fab story. I, I, I really have... enjoy the stories tonight. Yeah, I have too. I think this was a really good source of uh, spook for, for us, the good old roads around Essex. And there's, we get, again, and I know we say this every episode, we'll probably revisit it because even like up until 10 minutes before, we met tonight. I was finding something else about another road somewhere. I've still got a book on order, which I found a really great, uh, several really great stories in, but it hasn't turned up yet. So when that book arrives. <laughs> and we also have a listener story as well about a, oh, a road. Yeah. You that, told me that. That was brilliant. Yeah. So when I can get around to interviewing this person, it's when you told me the story, it sounded very much like something out of the Wicker Man. So. Mm. I'm looking forward to that one. I won't tell you too much about it because I want to see your face. <laughs> well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Eerie Essex. Do you want to do a shout out to any podcasts? Oh, um, there's a podcast I was listening to a while back, uh, which I think I've caught up on again now called Mabel, which is um, based in folklore. It seems like a haunting at first and then it becomes definitely in the folk horror genre and it's really well acted, really well uh, sort of sound engineered as well. I just I, I suggest it to anyone who wants to sort of chill their bones with some folk horror this winter. Do love some folk horror. Anything you want to suggest? I've been really, I mean, I've been listening to it for a while now. And I think a lot of people might like it. It's, it's, it's called Modern Fairy Sightings with Joe Hickey Hall. And it's a very lovely honest look at well it does what it says on the tin modern fairy sightings but not just like winged tinkerbells i mean joe starts the podcast by saying be warned these aren't just winged tinkerbells these are forces of nature and and the the stories come from all sorts of places and all sorts of people what i like is she interviews people around the whole world and people in different professions i mean some people 
don't want to be named because they're in quite high profile jobs. They don't want people to perhaps know, but they're they're adamant that what they've seen is real. And apparently since lockdown, a lot more people have been coming out and saying they've seen these things during that time. And it's just absolutely fascinating. And she looks at it with such a reverence. So, you know, nobody is, it's, it's nobody's made fun of, nobody's laughing at these people. It's a very honest look at people's experiences and it's just wonderful to listen to. And Joe's got such a lovely voice that, I mean, even if you don't believe, it's just one of those things that are fascinating to hear. I'm definitely going to listen to that. That sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. Also very closely related to what I, the podcast I mentioned, Mabel. Ah, interesting. Well, should we sign off then? Yes. So, well, thank you for listening to episode four on roads. So it's goodbye from Bethan. And it's goodbye from Elsa. Bye. Bye. If you would like to share a story or have any more information on this episode's topics, you can contact us via email at eriesexpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram under Eerie Essex for more content from the episodes and sneak peeks at future topics. If you've enjoyed listening, why not consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts?